0: Look at Roosevelt Hospital. We had Roosevelt Hospital. You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to Morph Mom Moments. Uh, Normally, as those coming back to the show know, we're on Thursday nights, but we have a very, very special day with special guests, and it's an absolute honor to be here today. Um, As you will hear, for the first half hour, we're going to be speaking with Joan Juliet Buck, who is just... One of the most inspirational women, and I cannot wait to speak with her and share her story with everybody. And then following that at 1245 to 115, we'll be joined by New York Times journalist James Barron, and we're going to talk about his new book, The One Cent Magenta. So stay tuned. Um, now before we get to Joan, which all of you listening right now are very eager to do, as I am myself, a very brief and quick intro, I promise. My name is Kathleen Smith. I'm the founder of more Uh, we have a multimedia platform. We have a website. I write for the Huffington post. We have the radio show. I travel the country and host cocktail parties. We have classes and we're starting a speaker series. That's going to come to a few cities next year. That's going to be getting, uh, this, uh, late, uh, beginning of May, I think will be our first one. Um, but stay tuned. The dates will be out there and you just have to go to the website, m o r p h m o m dot com to get the dates and what's coming up. And, uh, this interview will be up on my iTunes podcast tomorrow. You can also go to com to get the link to that, to, to that as well. So without further ado, and for those of you who are like, all right, Kathleen, let's get on to Joan. I completely understand. Uh, It's an absolute honor, as I mentioned, to have the first and only American Editor-in-Chief of Paris Vogue with us today, who's now here to discuss her new memoir, The Price of Illusion. Joan Juliet Buck, thank you so, so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you for having me on. It's an honor for me.
1: I I think what you've done is amazing, and sort of your background and how you came to where you are today. Would you tell us a little bit about... um, about your journey and how you sort of ended up as the editor-in-chief and then in turn writing this book.
2: Well, the journey, it's, you know, as I discovered writing The Price of Illusion, no journey is ever direct, certainly not mine. My father was a produ- was a young producer in Hollywood. My mother was, had been a child actress who stopped acting at 19 when she married my father. And because of the McCarthy witch hunt, uh, the atmosphere in Hollywood got very bad for people making movies, whether or not they were communists. so my parents were communists, but they did not like living and working in a toxic environment so in thousand nine hundred and fifty two we moved to paris. I was this tiny toddler I learned French very, very young, and because I learned French very young, when we moved on to London, I was put in a, in a French school so there is the one distinguishing characteristic that I have is that French is my first language, but I'm not a French person.
1: Right.
2: And, you know, I was a mod in 60s, swinging London, which meant I wore pretty short skirts and (laughs) spent my Saturdays shopping, as my entire generation did. And uh, so my parents had a perfect eye and wonderful taste. I really liked costume and dress-ups because... My father made movies, so he would take me to the costume place in London. Nathan's and Berman's were the people who made the costumes for every single film that was made in England. There were miles of Victorian costumes. And for me, fashion was costume. So also, I didn't know if I was French or American (laughs) or English. So I transferred out out of a French university and went to college in America And I arrived from London, and everybody thought I'd be this, you know, pot smoking, sexy chick who'd had a million lovers, many of them the Beatles. And I was this virgin with nice clothes, (laughs) (laughs) and rather timid, and quite short, and uh, you know, and who spoke perfect French. But that was no use at Sarah Lawrence. And I only lasted fifteen months at Sarah Lawrence. I didn't understand America. I didn't get it. Because I had survived in Europe, um, you know, in all these different environments by fastening on what I could see. I'm very visual, so color meant a lot to me. Shape, form, things. I, I'm always noticing stuff. The shape of a butter pat in a diner yesterday. Um, you know, the way the light falls, the color of a flower, just everything. Uh, I think that oil slicks in 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 the street are truly beautiful. <laughs> so um, I, I had been a child actress myself. My father didn't want me to act anymore. Found out I was in the theater department in college, sent me a cable saying, no, don't, you're not going to be an actress. And because I adored my father, which is also very much what the price of illusion was about. When I got that cable, I went, okay, fine, I can write. So I started writing for the cool paper, these rather lively reviews, and I got a job replacing the book critic at Glamour Magazine while she was on paternity leave. It was a summer job. I also became an assistant in the fashion department, and in charge, I decided of French photographers because that was my first language, and they were fun to hang out with. And uh, I went back to England, and then I was in France as a stylist. For a photographer called Guy Bourdin, the only job I wanted was features editor of British Vogue because I'd grown up reading British Vogue, an exceptionally great Vogue, and I th- I was more interested really in the whole culture, you know, the movies, the music, the books, the the artists. Then I was really in the clothes. The clothes were wonderful costume, but I really wanted to be this person in charge of culture for Vogue. And when I was 23, I got the job.
1: Wow, 23. The first? Yeah. And not to mention 23, but the first and only American woman ever. No,
2: but this, this, was, this was British Vogue. Oh, British Vogue. I'm sorry, but at that yeah, time, so
1: that, were there many women in that field or in that position? Oh, that?
2: yeah, yeah. You know, Vogue has always been... Classically and rather depressingly, Vogue was the magazine where young girls from good families went to pretend to work <laughs> uh, for very little money until they married a rich man. Now, I didn't like the idea of marrying a rich man because what I saw of rich people's marriages looked terribly depressing and unappealing.
1: Right.
2: I wanted to work I wanted to meet the great creators and thinkers and directors and painters and writers of the time, and that's why Features Editor was what I wanted and but um at my at that point, my father was doing very well. My salary was ten pounds a week, which translates at about um oh God, about seven dollars
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Huh. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's what it used to be. Yeah. Okay, it became much more professional and much more grown up afterwards. But in 1972, that was my salary, 10 pounds a week plus expenses. But every time I took a taxi, a little lady called Lily Davis would turn up and say, Joan, you've taken a taxi again. (laughs) So, you know, behind the veil is never quite what you think it's going to be. Right. And then... I got a job with Women's Wear Daily. They offered me a hundred pounds a week, uh, seventy dollars a week. So off I went to riches <laughs> as the American correspondent of Women's Wear Daily. And that, and then, and now I had to look at fashion shows, and I had to stand outside parties with the photographer and photograph, you know, and get the names of the people coming in to send these contact sheets to New York of, of the. You know, the fancy parties in New York. Well, that got old really fast. And I had a boyfriend who wanted to move back to Rome. And so I got the job of Rome correspondent of Women's Wear Daily. And it was the mid 70s. The bombs were going off. There were terrorists everywhere. People were being kidnapped. There was tear gas in the streets because of the demonstrations. It was, that was kind of exciting. Right. And I did Rome, I did Milan, and then I kind of had had enough of that, and I quit because I knew that what I wanted to do was write a novel. And, and, and I'm going to interrupt.
1: How old were you at this point when you quit and decided that you wanted to switch gears to write the novel? 26. Oh, okay. So you'd been doing this for about three So three years you've been going?
2: Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. I mean, basically, if I'd started at 19, because I dropped out of Sarah right, Lawrence right. and into Glamour, but I'd been women's wear and Vogue since I was... Yeah, it, it had been three years. I'd had enough. I just had seen through this. I had to write a novel. So I moved to California. I moved to L.A. to a really cheap apartment. I have a rented bed. The Mormon building manager lends me his dinette set. I have a piece of foam rubber on the floor that's my sofa... Because I don't quite realize it, but my father has actually lost everything.
1: <laughs> and did you find that out after you'd moved to L.A.?
2: Um, yes. And wow. Yeah. And I drove uh, something, a car. It was an apple green Mustang with one red door from a company called Rent-A-Rack. <laughs> and I tried desperately to be an artist. And I started... Writing this novel, but I was in LA, so of course it turned into a screenplay. <laughs> That's so interesting. And so, you know, finally, the beloved, wonderful editor in chief of British Vogue, Beatrix Miller, sees me in London because I went to the Cannes Film Festival to write about a movie I loved, and um, sent by American Vogue, for whom I was now writing. And this wonderful Beatrix Miller says, darling, you must have a beautiful house in Los Angeles. And I said, no. She said, you must have a wonderful car. I said, "Uh, no. She said, you must have a great boyfriend. I said, no. She said, darling, you're coming back to London to help me with the Jubilee issue. She was going to save me. I've been very lucky to know such great women in my life. Mm -hmm. Beatrix Miller made me come back to London, at which point my poor, very depressed father had lost even more. My mother was very upset. Um, and I was back in my old job at British Vogue. I was 28. I met my husband, who was English, and who was a great writer, who is a great writer. He was then on the Observer newspaper in London. And there we are. We're married. And I have all these designer friends in Paris, like Yves Saint Laurent and Karl Lagerfeld, who makes me my wedding dress. Wow. And And things were kind of grim in London because it was the late 70s, post-oil crisis, life was a little tough. But all my friends in Paris kept having parties. So John and I would get on that plane to Paris and go to the parties, fancy dress once again. I wore my wedding dress to more parties for the next (laughs) two years.
1: (laughs) That's the best thing I've ever heard.
2: (laughs) Well, the thing is, the wedding dress was a mauve antique silk riding habit. So it didn't look like I was a bride. It looked like I was somebody out of an 18th century movie. Um, But Karl Lagerfeld got really sick of seeing me in my wedding outfit. (laughs) I've got to make you something else. (laughs) Because I'm both extravagant and thrifty. And if something is beautiful, I'm not going to get rid of it. Right. So finally things got so bad in England financially, um, John and I decided to move to New York. I had finally started writing my first novel. I borrowed an empty chalet in a very she little town village in Switzerland wh- over the summer. And at that point, nobody went to Switzerland in the summer. So in this little village of Gstaad in May and June, everybody living in the houses were the poor relatives. And then there was me in the borrowed chalet, and every day I'd walk down the hill, buy two eggs and a slice of ham, and that was my lunch and dinner, and I wrote 100 pages of my first novel. Wow. And we come to America, we're very excited, my first novel gets published, it was called The Only Place to Be, Um, my husband and I break up because I'm now 32, 33, and so ambitious for success that I basically throw tantrums every time things don't go my right. way. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, um, and off we go, and I'm writing. I now have a contract with American Vogue. I'm writing, I'm doing... They would send me, like, to Italy for two months to write a 60-page essay about Italy. Wow. And I did these really wonderful, very, very long pieces that would take forever to write, and to research, and they were really fun. Um, There was a features editor at American Vogue called Leo Lerman. Do you remember the movie Fanny and Alexander? Yes. Okay, do you remember the grandfather with the beard? Yep. Yep. That's what he was like. He was this dispenser (laughs) of magic. He was kindness and magic and erudition and love and fantasy, and he loved that I dressed in mauve (laughs) and wore fancy dress most of the time. So, um I'm writing for him and everything is kind of everything is kind of wonderful and um then um unfortunately my father um unfortunately my father who has been very depressed he and my mother have moved back to Los Angeles um things are not good And one day, four guys break into their apartment and pistol whip him.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: And the trauma of this event sent him over the edge. So my poor father, who had been a very powerful, important producer in England, who had a company with Peter O'Toole, who made these great movies, now a diminished, you know, minor person in L.A. with no money and no status, now... He's damaged, Mm -hmm. and I have to get him to a doctor who diagnoses him as manic depressive and puts him on lithium. And my parents don't have a lot of money, and things are costing a lot. So instead of an easy life writing eight fun articles for Vogue every year, I'm now writing 10, 12, 14, 22 articles to take care of my parents. Mm Mm-hmm. So the life that looked so glossy and the pretty clothes and the high heels and the same black velvet Yves Saint Laurent suit that I keep wearing because I'm thrifty as well as extravagant give one image. But the truth is I'm working my ass off to take care of mom and dad.
1: Right. And does anybody – oh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but at the time, are you? do, do people know what's going on? Or are you sort of just keeping, you know – sort of keeping things as is, so no one really knows what's going on behind the scenes? Well,
2: it, it, this, this is a, such an interesting question because it leads to the core of the book. As far as my parents are concerned, it's a secret Yeah, that he has mental problems and that they have no money. Um, Because it's on me, I'm telling people because I'm trying to borrow money from people. Right. And, but for me, this was the secret that I couldn't tell publicly. I told... But I didn't tell it publicly. So for me, to write the book and to write about my father's being bipolar, and to write about the fragility of this man who had always been considered so strong and so in control, um, felt in a way like a betrayal. It was something that I had to get beyond. And I had to get to the point of, this is your story, Joan. It's as much a part of your story as it is of their story. You are not betraying them. They are both dead now. And what they are, what they were, is what made you. And it's legitimate to talk about it.
1: Right. And just to show, I, I think in the story itself, just shows what a wonderful job they did even raising you, though, that you, having come from a background like that, some may not have had the fortitude and the strength and the wherewithal to go out there and say, okay, now it's my turn. You know, yes, I did come from that, and now it's my turn to take the reins and help and pay. You know, so I think it says something incredible, too, about them. that
2: They were extraordinary people. And, you know, one of the most heartwarming things now the book is out is when people come up to me and say, My father was called Jules, my mother was called Joyce, and my Uncle Don is a very big character in the book. People come up to me and say, Oh, my God, I love Jules so much. Oh. Or the other day there was a book party, and a woman came up to me and said, I love your Uncle Don. Your Uncle Don is so amazing. And I said, and this is his daughter Janice standing next to me. And the woman burst into tears. So f- to have been able, t- I set out, when I set out to write this book six years ago, I didn't realize that what it was going to mean was spending six years with the people I loved the most who are dead now and bringing them back to life for others. Right. right. And as an only child, I wasn't able to share things in my life. And now I am able to share my life with others and other people walk into this book and they share my life with me and they feel love for the people that I loved. Which means this is something you
1: know, you were meant to do, clearly. It's funny how you were saying how your path went from originally acting when you were young and that changed to then writing. And somehow that was the course you were meant to take because you were able, like you said, to sort of bring to life the story of your family And the beauty of it, but not by what I love about it is not by hiding things that went wrong and things that didn't go well, because I think that's the only way to connect with somebody. And everyone is so worried about, like you said, you know, with the messages that appearance at times matter more than reality. And, you know, is it fantasy or reality that we want to show? And I think that's why you're so inspirational on top of it is by sharing everything you learn to love the person for who they actually are. I don't know. I, exactly. I love what you've done.
2: And, and the most difficult part of my life was when I was this, you know, kind of little bold-faced name running around New York writing for Vogue, writing these pieces that everybody read and, you know, well-dressed and in the high heels. And I was actually, I don't drink. I've never liked alcohol. So I would go to these parties and I would come home from the party, and I'd take off my high heels, and I'd sit down, and I would work on an assignment until four or five in the morning. Ugh. And I spent my weekends writing. All I did was work. But it looked like such a glamorous life. And my mother's whole thing was to pretend everything was wonderful. Right. And my father's sort of business thing, he turned Peter O'Toole into a star, by, um, I don't even know how he did it, except that Peter was a great actor to begin with. But, you know, he, as a producer, he knew how to create the appearance of a better reality. Right. And the most tense moment in my life was when my mother would say, you mustn't tell anyone, and then feeling like a really bad daughter, I'd call a rich friend of theirs in London and ask for money. Because I wasn't earning enough writing the magazine articles.
1: Oh, when did they ever know that you reached out to others, or did they did they never ask?
2: Um, I think that I would sort of try and hide it right. because I didn't. You know, I I, I I I didn't want to have an argument.
1: Right. Right. I
2: remember at, at one point I just went and borrowed from the bank twenty thousand dollars. And I took a thousand dollars of that and bought myself a string of pearls that I'd seen in a window on Third Avenue in the sort of funny Chinese shop. It wasn't a fancy jeweler. And then I got a little um I got a little cut stone of Plato. And I had that put on as the clasp, but I called that my pearls of wisdom.
1: <laughs> I, think I think still you have that, that. necklace. <laughs> you actually yeah. earned that, I
2: think. So, you know, so so all this life goes on. I go back to Paris, I write another novel, I come back to America, and I cannot generate a third novel because there were so many secrets around what was ha- what had happened to my family. And there were so many secrets around everything that I thought I wasn't allowed to tell the truth, that it was better to tell everything in fiction. But by now, I'm in my... Late thirties, early forties, and I'm trying to write a third novel. I'm trying to tell another big lie, right? And it's not working. It's not happening. And from 1988 to 1994, I sat at my desk in New York writing for Vogue, and now Vanity Fair, and now The New Yorker, and now Traveler. And by now, things are a bit better in L.A. because Mom has taken it, has become a decorator, so things are, you know, a little bit better. But it's still the same thing. It's still the same kind of hamster wheel, right? and it it's not a happy life. It's not a life. It's a life of new clothes and deadlines and, you know, fulfilling the deadlines to pay for the new clothes, because I never went to the designers and said, give me this. I would go to the shops. I would right. go to the sales racks. You know, sometimes I'd get 30% off, um, but it was a completely fake life that gave me nothing, and... I was offered a few times during those years um, the editorship of Paris Vogue. And every time I would say, no, I'm a writer, I'm an artist, I don't put my shoes on during the day, I haven't worked in an office for years, I'm not an editor, I'm not political, I can't manipulate people, I can't do it. And then finally, it was the 14th of 17 snowstorms in the winter of 1994. The kitty litter smelled really bad because the windows (laughs) were closed. Giant snowflakes were thudding on the air conditioner. And the man I'd been going out with had told me it was over. And I get yet another phone call about would I come to Paris and edit French Vogue. And even though I hadn't worked in an office for 16 years, I hadn't worn shoes during the day for 16 years, I thought, why not? This will get me out of here. And it'll take me back to Paris That should be kind of nice. So off I went to Paris, unprepared, unschooled. They had, Vogue had to secretly, Vogue in New York had to secretly teach me how to use a computer, 1994, because I'd never been able to afford one, because all the money went on clothes. And um, I arrive in Paris, and I meet all the staff. And I'm used to, you know, my relationships are either... Close friendships, or I'm interviewing people. I don't know how to have the boss employee relationship. Right. So, the first, the assistant of my predecessor tells me that she's editing um, a movie by Eric Romer, this great director. You know, she's, she's the assistant, but she, during lunchtime, she goes and edits this movie. And I say, Oh my God, that's really fantastic! I don't say, well, if you're working for me, you shouldn't be editing a movie during lunchtime. <laughs> right. You should be getting me my lunch. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like not having the chair. So finally, I managed to assemble, but probably very clumsily, a team around me. But because I do have imagination um, and because I'm very personal in my relationship, I managed to get this whole staff of rather self-conscious French people to do, to, to spark together and to create really wonderful, amazing issues of the magazine and to make it relevant. How did we make it relevant? I said, we're not going to put in the magazine what you think you should put in there. Yes, we're going to photograph the clothes by the advertisers, but we're going to do the fashion photos and we're going to do the features according to what your passions are, because if we do them according to what you think you should be doing, it's not going to be good for anyone. Right. You have to get as much out of doing the work as the reader is going to get out of reading the magazine. And there was that. There was also, I took out all these French adjectives that were very florid from the text, but I tripled the volume of text and... If I ever commissioned anything in English, which happened now and then, the translator I got, so that the French wouldn't wouldn't be, like, too complicated, I got a translator who translated thrillers. Wow. So that the words were really immediate. Right. There wasn't this sort of fancy, airy-fairy stuff. Right. Oh, that's And, you know, the circulation went up by 40%. Wow. Wow.
1: So. I think you're, I'm, I'm looking, oh Joan, I'm so upset. I just looked at the time and it's 1146. I'm going to get in trouble because I promised I'd have you off at 1145. We could talk forever about this. And I, I hope you'll come back on. I, I would keep you on, but I know I'm going to get in big trouble <laughs> because you have to go somewhere else. Um, I think you're, your story is incredible. It's incredibly inspiring. What I love about it most though, as I said before, is how honest you are about it. And I think it makes it so relatable in this world of social media, especially today where everything is appearance, like you said, you know, appearance matter more than reality. So we're going to put everything up and it's going to look perfect and nothing becomes relatable and you can't even connect with anyone. But what you've done to bring everything out in the open to show there is success when and when there are trials and tribulations and obstacles, it's okay. You can still do it. And that's exactly what you've done. And I think of all the gifts you've brought to us, there's so many, I think this is a huge one. Especially I have a 21-year-old daughter, just to know that to be open and out there doesn't stop you. If if anything, I would think it sort of frees you. It gives you a sense of. You know what? I'm not high. Like, it's there. This is who I am, and I'm going to do it. And I can't thank you enough for coming on today, and I really mean this. I hope you'll come back again. I hope that I'm going to email you and see if you'll come back on again. Um, but I want to just say the, the price of illusion, your new memoir is out. And where should, where can people go? What's the best way to get that?
2: Well, first try your local bookstore. And if the local bookstore is sold out, which has been happening quite a bit, which is a good thing, go to Amazon um i buy it um uh, <laughs> <laughs> local bookstore barnes and noble amazon um buy it new oh um because my father was a photographer there are extraordinary pictures there are two uh there are 16 pages of photographs in the book most of which have never been seen pictures like there's a picture of lauren bacall and humphrey bogart Feeding whiskey to John oh my Houston's gosh. monkey, <laughs> as my mother and her best friend look on. There are these amazing photos, so I would say it's not that much more expensive to buy the hardback than it is to buy the Kindle, and the pictures are really something.
1: That is amazing. Well, once again, everyone, run, don't walk, to get the price of Illusion. And if nothing else, uh, we've learned a lot today from Joan. But again, I think honesty and sh- and is much more freeing, I think, than keeping up that veil of perfection. And I thank you so much for that, Joan. I really hope you come back again. Um, And, Joan, I'm sorry I I kept you late, but, Joan, I could talk to you forever. Thank you once again for coming. And um, I'd love to have you
2: back. I'll talk to you. I would love to come back. Oh, good. See you soon. See you soon. soon. Bye, Joan. Bye. Bye.
1: So for everybody out there, that was just Joan Juliet Buck. Uh, the author of her new memoir, The Price of Illusion. And uh, very soon, within minutes or seconds, hopefully, we're going to be joined by James Barron. He's a journalist at the New York Times. He has covered everything you can imagine from the September 11th attacks to minute-to-minute reporting in 2001, the 10th anniversary story as well in 2011. Um, he has covered Sandy Hook. He has covered... Um, Hurricane Sandy in 2012, you name it, he's covered it. But today what we're going to talk about when he calls in is something fascinating. It's his recent um, book and it's called, oh, here he is. Hold on one second. Hi, James. It's Kathleen. Welcome to the show. James. Hi. 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 And welcome to Morph Mom Moments. This is Kathleen, and it's a thrill to have you on. Um, I was just giving a little bit of background before you called in. Um, I'll quickly review it again. Again, everyone, we're speaking with James Barron, New York Times journalist. He's covered you name it. He's done it. It's from September 11th to Sandy Hook shooting to Hurricane Sandy. Um, but I was just about to say what we're going to talk about today, which I think is fascinating, is the new book, The One Cent Magenta inside the quest to own the most valuable stamp in the world. And James has covered auctions. And some of these auctions included the auctioning off of the piano from Casablanca. And the one we're going to talk about today is the auctioning off of one of the most valuable stamps in the world. Um, And apparently, and James, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in 1856, when it was first printed, the stamp that was auctioned was worth a penny. In 2014... This one-cent magenta stamp sold at Sotheby's for nearly $9.5 million.
0: That's right. That's <laughs> the story.
1: Okay, can you tell us about
0: it? It's a little stamp. It's a, it's a teeny postage stamp. And the reason it went for that much money is it's the only one of all the one-cent stamps that were printed in British Guiana in 1856, which is where this stamp came from. All the others were thrown away. This is the only one. So it's unique. That's why it's so special. That's why it's worth so much.
1: What's so fascinating, um, and I'm curious as to your, you've, you've been involved with, au- you've seen these auctions, you've written about them, and a stamp, a stamp that was worth a penny, again, very rare. But what is the compulsion, I guess, of, or to collect to spend these amounts of money to to have something so rare um, that gives it such extraordinary value. Do you see anything or have you spoken with the people who who go to these auctions and are willing to do anything to get these items?
0: Well, it's only human. I mean, over the years, I've I've written about people who collect erector sets and people who collect slide rules and people who collect cereal boxes and jukeboxes and quilts and people who hoarded old Coke when Coca-Cola changed the formula and brought out new Coke. And and then I wrote once about college students who were making off with Nutella from the dining halls and hoarding it in their dorm rooms. The administration (laughs) used the word stealing the Nutella, not making off with. (laughs) People collect things. It's a human it's 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 the most human impulse i guess that there is when it comes to stuff around you and and with stamps you can categorize them and you can look at the differences and you can figure out you know how does this one differ from the ones that were printed 3 years before and so in a way part of it is just knowledge knowing those differences and and to some extent for many people who collect stamps it's having them and and there's also a history with a capital h that's behind this because in so many ways stamps opened the world to people i mean they showed you the world before you could go there we can get on a plane and go almost anywhere now but but 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you couldn't go to a lot of the places you could get stamps from because the mail would bring them to you. So British Guiana, for example, where this stamp came from, was probably in that category for most of us here. Wish We had lucked on to a stamp that was worth as much as this one.
1: Do the stamps, or any of the stamps you've come across, I guess, tell stories as well when you were saying history historic, or I guess geographically it shares, but is there anything to sort of the story behind the picture or the message that's included in those stamps? Have you ever? Uh, We
0: started breaking up. Can we try that again? Sure.
1: (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, so uh, historically the stamps would also show a geographic, um, you know, where they came from somewhere you always dreamed about going somewhere you could never get to be. Was there any historical significance to them as far as the story? Was there a story behind any of the pictures they used or the stamps? I'm just curious if that ever came up.
0: Well, this stamp was a provisional stamp. Uh, What that meant was in British Guiana, they depended on stamps from London. Stamps that were engraved in London and printed there. The way all the colonies, all the British colonies, all the places where the sun never set, they got their stamps from London. But sometimes your ship doesn't come in. And that's what happened in British Guiana. The ship came in and the shipment of stamps was short. There weren't as many stamps on, on board as there were supposed to be, as they had ordered. The postmaster had to do something, so what he did was he went to the local newspaper and he said, print me some stamps to tide me over. And so they took type and set it by hand. It's a different printing process from how they made them in London. And they ran off several hundred, probably, no one really knows. And that's how these stamps came into being. The postmaster was so worried that there were other printing presses in British Guiana and maybe somebody could do the same thing that he made the clerks in the post office initial each one of these as they were sold to authenticate them, to make sure they were real. And I guess it's a small enough place that you could have looked at the signature, the initials on it, and realized if it was a fraud or a fake signature, if it wasn't the right signature.
1: Were you there um, when they sold the stamp? I guess let me ask this first. Where did they get this? Who had the stamp? How did someone know? Is someone told there's a value to the stamp? You should go ahead and do this? Or do stamp collectors sort of, whoever would have had the stamp knew that, had an understanding that someday I will auction this stamp off? Or Do you know the history of that?
0: Well, it started with a 12-year-old boy. Uh, The stamp was printed and sold and forgotten it was printed in 1856 and sold and it was canceled in early april of 1856 and then it was forgotten for 13 years it was apparently put on a newspaper the newspaper went to somebody's house you know i'm a newspaper guy so it hurts to say at the end of the day people throw away the newspapers (laughs) but that's what happens except in this case It didn't happen. They didn't throw the newspaper away. And that's why this stamp got saved. It got put in an attic or in in the basement of of the home of of this lawyer in British Guiana. In 1873, he moved away. And his nephew, among others, was sent over to clean out what he'd left behind in his house. The nephew was into this new cool hobby that had just been invented stamp collecting and the nephew sees all these papers and realizes they're envelopes and their newspapers with stamps on them he thinks what a what a find i'll take the stamps home and that's what he did what he didn't realize was that this one was the thing every stamp collector dreams of i mean i collected stamps for a, a year or two when i was You know, when I was a boy, well, you always dream of finding the one important stamp. Uh, Andrew Hunter, this this kid, had that stamp, but he didn't know it. And so he traded it for lesser stamps. It was the worst stamp trade ever. (laughs) Oh, my God. His family gave him a hard time after that, and they still say it's the thing, it's the one that got away. He (laughs) had the one that got away.
1: That's unbelievable. So where did it go from
0: there? Uh, It it, it went, it was uh, sent to, he traded it to a dealer there, and that dealer eventually sent it to Europe, um, where, among other things, it was seen by one of the Experts in in stamp collecting, a man named E.L. Pemberton, and he realized what it was. He realized it was an authentic, provisional stamp, and he said so in a letter, I think, with exclamation points after it. Well, when E.L. Pemberton talked, Stamp World listened, and he was practically shouting. So that (laughs) ratified what the stamp was. That put the stamp on the map, and then it was sold to... Maybe the greatest stamp collector of all co- of all time. He certainly bought everything. His name was Ferrari, not like the car, but with a Y on the end instead of an I. He was a, an aristocrat who lived in Paris in a in a palace. In fact, his palace is now the home of the the official residence of the French Prime Minister. Um, and he had uh, you know this amazing collection of stamps, including. The one magenta. He owned it for about thirty years. He died in a taxi in uh, nineteen seventeen or eighteen, uh, trying to buy stamps. I think in, uh, in some, you know, he was off trying to buy stamps while World War One was going on. He was still buying stamps, and he died in this in this taxi. And the French government took possession of his stamp collection and sold it. And that's when it was bought by the richest man in Utica, New York, Arthur Hind. He was an industrialist, and he had the stamp, and really it became kind of his identity. Uh, he loved going around and, and having it shown. He loved that it brought him fame. He He just loved being... Mr. 1 cent magenta.
1: <laughs> can I, can I great, Oh, I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt. Who who coined it or gave it the name? <laughs> coined it. The 1 cent magenta. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I some I don't know, somewhere along the way that's just how it became known because okay. it's printed on that color paper. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, it's it's not Really red. I mean, I went and found a couple of color experts. Um, uh, it's probably faded over the years. It's gotten darker, uh, so that when I look at it, 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 it's it's not anything to look at. I mean, the editor of uh, one of the stamp magazines back in the nineties called it the ugliest thing he'd ever seen. <laughs> uh, you don't you don't fall in love with this stamp for its looks,
1: right? Oh, that's so funny. Okay, so I didn't mean to inter- interrupt you. I'm so sorry. So he, now it's up in uh, Utica, New York. Kathleen. Oh, yes. I'm so sorry. James has to get to his next one. Oh, okay, James. I'm so sorry. Um, thank you so much. Wait, before sure. you go. So now we've given everyone just a taste and a tease of what's to come. So, so far, everyone listening, we know the stamp has made it to Utica, New York. So you got to get the book now. And we got to find out what happened to the one cent magenta before it sold for $9.5 million in 2014. Again, the book is The One Cent Magenta Inside the Quest to Own the Most Valuable Stamp in the World. And, James, just where, what is the best way to get the book?
0: Uh, anywhere where books are sold, <laughs> any place you would go and buy a book, they have it.
1: We have to get this now. And again, just a... Once again, to answer these questions and to, you know, is it nostalgic? Is it, I don't know, but I guess when you read this book, you'll see what it is You your passion goes towards, and maybe someday you'll end up at Sotheby's with something worth uh, $9 million more than it was worth when it was purchased. James, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I'd love to have you back. I'm going to spread the word through Morph Mom. This is amazing. And I think for kids as well, I think kids should read this book. This is really a fascinating story on history, the importance of history, nostalgia, and what happens with something. Thank you so much. Um, Good luck with the book, and again, the New York Times journalist and author of "The One Cent Magenta: Inside the Quest to Own the Most Valuable Stamp in the World." I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much.
1: So, everyone, this was an amazing show today. As you know, we heard from Joan Juliet Buck, again the only and first American female editor female in chief editor. in chief of Paris Vogue. Uh, also now with her new memoir, The Price of Illusion, which is out, um, and as she said, sort of discusses how her life was cloaked in a, sort of a dreamy appearance as opposed to what the reality was behind the scenes, and all of that is explained how it was very difficult to maintain this outward persona of the fast and the wealthy and the rich all the time really sustaining and helping her parents get through a really difficult time. Um, but really searching into herself to say, what was it fair to say? What was it not fair to say? Um, I think she's incredibly inspiring. I loved speaking with her and I can't wait for her to come on again. Again, that is the price of illusion. And as I mentioned to her before, I think it's incredibly significant, especially with our kids today and with social media. Um, you know, everything is perfect. Every shot you send out is, this is great. I'm with all these people. I'm so happy. This is the perfect life. And I think for those of us, and really the reality of most of us, that is not the case. And it's very easy to show something, the appearance as opposed to the reality. So I think it's something important for our kids to know about as well. And, you know, when you define success, what is it? And I think it's pretty pretty difficult to achieve achieve that success while maintaining this veil of um this veil of something that's not true—you're not really who you are if that's what you're doing. So again, I I, I hope and encourage all of you who got the price of illusion. And then we were joined by another amazing guest who I hope comes back on again, James Barron, the journalist at the New York Times, who again has covered—you name it—he's covered it from September 11th to Hurricane Sandy to the Sandy Hook shootings, but also because it's a very wide scope that he covers, uh, many auctions that have gone on. And I said, including, which we didn't even get to talk to the piano from Casablanca. Um, Just so so fascinating. But one of the things that he covered and now has turned into a book is called The One Cent Magenta, Inside the Quest to Own the Most Valuable Stamp in the World. And for those of you who are listening um, or those of you just joining us now, this was a stamp that was first printed in 1856. At the time, it was a penny. In 2014, that stamp, the one-cent magenta, sold for $9.5 million. It's insane. But it's such a fascinating look into a-, a human's compulsion to collect. And what is the desire to go out and find the most rare or the most unique of items um, and to pay such an extraordinary price for these items? And is it nostalgia that brings you there? Is it... Um, just a passion for for the history of that item. Or I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I think we all again need to go out and get the one-cent magenta inside the quest to own the most valuable stamp in the world Um, just to learn the story of this stamp. And it, it reads like a history book as well, but also... So interesting how the stamp collector's world has come to be and how they know who is the guru, who says what is what. How do you determine that this one penny stamp is worth more than this one penny stamp? I think it's just a fascinating exploration into this. So I want to thank everybody for listening today. This will be up on my iTunes podcast, hopefully by tomorrow if I get my act together, Morph Mom Moments. You can go to morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com to get the link to both podcasts um and I'll, I'll separate them for everybody uh again one will be under uh joan Juliet buck and one will be under james barron um thank you and next uh, this thursday we will be back at our normal time 7 p.m with a very interesting interesting discussion i have some women coming in to talk about it's funny when we're talking about hiding behind reality um you know, hiding behind what really is there, as opposed to the reality of the situation. This Thursday night, we're going to have a pretty in-depth conversation about a very difficult topic to discuss: infertility and IVF, and how you know it's it's very hard to maintain a straight face all day long when behind the scenes there's so much going on. So, join us for Thursday night, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern time, Eastern Standard Time, uh, where we have a pretty intense and open discussion about something again that. It's pretty hard to discuss, especially in an open forum. But I encourage you to listen and to call in that night, especially for those of you going through anything like this or about to embark upon something like this, or those who have gone through this and would like to share. Um, once again, thank everyone for listening to Morph Mom Moments. It's a pleasure to have you. And I look forward to talking to everyone Thursday night. See you then. Goodbye
0: honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week fabulous award-winning broadway tv film and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115 seat elegant venue aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience metropolitan room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top new york city bartenders the metropolitan room is located at 34